Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome back to Death by Champagne, the podcast here to keep you up at night, bringing you part two of our multi-part series covering the book, The Last Madame, A Life in the New Orleans Underworld by Christine Wiltz. This week, we cover a lot of ground, including three of Norma's marriages, the purchase of the notorious Conti Street house, and we give background on a number of key players in Norma's life. We end the episode nearing the end of the 40s in a long cat and mouse game between Norma and the chief of police. This episode contains foul language, discussions about the sex work industry, statutory rape, poverty, and the New Orleans underworld. We'll do our best to stay on track, but the bottles are popped. Hey guys. Hi, welcome back. We start and there's a noise. Of course there is. (laughs) Ooh, I'm coming up really loud today. It's probably fine. (laughs) Right into the red. (laughs) Oh, how is everyone making it? Yeah, surviving. Everyone, because I feel like September. How? How the fuck is it September? I don't know. I feel like every time we sit down to record, I have been like sprinting for hours <laughs> and then I have to sit down and recount it yeah yeah it's a weird time <laughs> it's so <laughs> weird uh, the weather is finally not a million fucking degrees though so I'm really excited for that is it didn't go outside today <laughs> uh well it like rained a lot which was nice and I think the high was like 83 maybe oh good yeah, getting down there. Oh, yeah, I just checked it. It's foggy and 70 right now. What is that? Yeah, I know. Hell yeah. Yeah. Um, I felt like I was going somewhere, but... <laughs> <laughs> Cut this. 
cut, cut, cut. Oh, oh yeah. I've had a lot of doctor's appointments in the last week from all the things that I missed during the pandemic. And so that's been really exhausting and not acceptable for me. Yeah, that's too much. I don't like it. Once. No. no. Still have I want all my doctor's appointments to be virtual from now on. <laughs> like everything. Uh, I haven't had any virtual ones yet, but I feel like all of mine had to be in person. So it was. Yeah. It was <laughs> yeah. not. You know, when you go in for your annual well-known exam, there's really nothing right. you can do about that from home. <laughs> you can't do that from home. Oh my gosh. No. I had two doctor's appointments that were virtual and it was great. Was one your stomach doctor? Yes. One was my stomach doctor. That was wonderful. It took literally 10 minutes, if that. And then the other one was my elbow checkup, which also <laughs> took 10 minutes. How did they check your elbows over the computer? I literally had to stand and like move my arms, however he told me. And what did they tell you about the status of your elbows? He was like, well, it's going to be a while till they're back to normal. Ah. I was like, cool. <laughs> Yeah, I still can't straighten my left one. Like, Uh oh. Yeah. I've been doing those exercises though, so we'll see. Hopefully. And I can literally lift like two and a half pounds. Killing it. (laughs) Like one with one hand. (laughs) You'll be back to a big purse in no time. Uh, Right. (laughs) Um, In some exciting news, I got my birthday presents that I bought for myself today. Yay! Very, very excited for that. That's super exciting. Um, just got, well, I ordered a bunch of books from Thrift Books. And I got the one from the case that we covered, Blood and Ivy, by Paul Collins. Oh, and yeah. then I also got the one that you already have, the Hamilton and yes. Burr yes. court case. Got that yes. about their murder trial. And then I got a forensic anthropology textbook and lab manual. Not really sure how helpful Ooh. the lab manual is going to be because I don't have any human remains at my house, but. <laughs> well, <laughs> you could pretend. <laughs> I might be in the market for a, an anatomical skeleton. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. I don't think anatomical was the word I wanted to use there. I think I wanted articulated, and I'm not sure if that's right either. Anatomical sounded right. <laughs> I felt like it was a little redundant, but. No. Definitely going to read that. Just ordered another uh, death investigation book today. Good, good. That's I'm exciting. in a, a bunch of Twitter groups with other podcasters, and we have a Discord channel, too, where we discuss everything under the sun, and we have a, an NSFW channel where Ooh. we post graphic crime scene photos oh and God. injuries and like medical reports yeah. that we find. Some of the things in that group are absolutely disgusting cannot do like not see when it. you think you're the <laughs> grossest person in the room and then you realize that you're like in the middle of the list <laughs> oh my god yeah no <laughs> you would die <laughs> no i don't want to do it <laughs> uh, but one of <laughs> my beautiful fellow podcasters got this book from a friend and posted some pictures of the inside of the book and was like look at these gnarly photos and i was like i need it who was it let me look heather from that would go good with vodka. She posted this true crime <laughs> investigation book. Yeah, Techniques of Crime Scene Investigation. And so I had it in my Amazon cart forever. And I was like, it's too expensive. I can't buy a textbook for no reason. It's like $90. Yeah. Oh, and yeah. then I went back to check it today. And all of a sudden, there's like 20 copies available that are used. Found the, Perfect. I think it's on the 8th edition. Found the 7th edition for $8. Oh, my God. Yes. 
Good. So excited. Good. Expanding my library. That is very exciting. I uh, started Midnight Sun. <laughs> trash. Pure <laughs> trash. It's great. It's wonderful. Edward is the most emo <laughs> person the on this planet. The whole thing is the most emo. <laughs> so happy. Oh, my God. Like, they should rewrite it. I know she's into alternative music, but honestly, I just feel like that if Sleeping with Sirens and Twilight could have coincided that oh, band yes. and that movie would have been just 100%. the perfect amount of dumb fuck together. Yes, yes. And I'm allowed to say that because I went to their concerts. <laughs> I waited no, in line totally. to be in the front row for that dumb shit. Oh, God. Oh, God. No. Uh, yeah, no, it's great so far, and I do not regret purchasing it. What has <laughs> been your favorite part so far? Oh, oh, okay. Um... Probably the number of times that he calls himself a stalker. It is said at least once every third page. That is disgusting. I'm a stalker. And he is. All he fucking does is creep on her. I (laughs) mean, to be fair, if I was a vampire, all I would do is creep on people too. I mean, yeah. Yeah. How unoriginal and gross. (laughs) Yes. And then he, you know, talks about how he's a monster and that he's the... (laughs) <laughs> the worst thing that could happen to her. It's just like so emo. It's wonderful. I am really <laughs> tired of like a self-sacrificial, like I'm the problem. I'll remove myself. Like stop it. Yeah. And he can't though. That's the whole point. He does <laughs> not remove himself. He does a really bad job at doing that. <laughs> like either go away or just own it. But we also would not have three other books if he hadn't, if he had removed himself. You know <laughs> my opinion on that. <laughs> I wish it were so. Uh, No, I love it. Love it. Ugh. I read them all when I was like a freshman in high school or however many were out by that point. I read them. And then I watched. like early high school. I think I walked out of the second movie. Oh, the movies are so fucking bad. Oh, man. I I didn't watch any of the movies till like recently when I just told you that I watched them. Like I had watched the first one in high school and then I was like, no. These They're are filth. Bad. Absolute filth. Yeah. I am excited for him as Batman, though. Oh, yeah. I think that's going to be great. Yeah. That's where I want to see him. Yes. Because I don't mind him. I actually don't mind either of them. I have not seen anything that I like her in. Like, um, I want to like her, but I have yet to watch a movie that she's in that I'm like, wow, she really, she just made that. Usually it's like, fuck, I wish she wasn't in that movie. <laughs> yeah. And I would have liked it. <laughs> I really liked, what was like the Snow White one she was in? Oh, yeah, The Huntsman. Yeah, that was decent. I did not like that. Well, I liked it okay. except for her. I did not like her in the movie. Yeah. I enjoyed the costuming and I enjoyed whatever that other lady's name is. Theron, Charlotte, right? Isn't that who was in it? I think so. Yeah, yeah. Charlie She's Theron. in it. Yeah, I liked her. But uh, yeah, I just don't, I don't know. I think I like her as a person. I'm inclined to stick up for her because everyone was like, she's such a terrible fucking actress. And the whole time we were like, oh, it's because we're forcing into forcing her into like this feminist or like oh, feminine this... pigeonhole that she doesn't belong yeah. in. So yeah, she's probably I don't really know if unhappy. That I think she's a bad actress. I just like don't I don't know. I don't like the things she's in. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it could just be a difference of genre. Yeah, I don't know. Me, me having an opinion on TV. When Ooh. I don't when I don't watch any. <laughs> <laughs> T- 
truth. Uh, speaking of TV, watched the third episode of Lovecraft Country yesterday and today. And is it, it still holding up? It's great. Oh, yeah. The third episode so far has been my favorite. It's very, very good. Good. I need to get on that. Yes, you must. I still haven't started. But this weekend, after I'm done teaching, I don't have any obligations. Yay! That's exciting. Very excited. What day? Saturday? Yep. And Sunday. Nice. Oh. And my days aren't broken up this weekend. You guys, this is like what a freak I am. That like my weekends are usually so segmented and scheduled that I'm like, I don't have anything to do afternoon. <laughs> Although last weekend, my plan after I was done teaching was to go to Top Golf for the first time. Yeah. It was really fun. Yeah. I that swung a golf club so fun. for the first time in my life. Same. I did that when I went. It was there. I had never done it. It was very fun. It's so much fun. I never really let go and like whacked the shit out of it because I was too nervous. <laughs> but I think if I went again and I wasn't with kids, I would. Yeah. I yeah. definitely would like drink a little more and get reckless. Yeah. <laughs> did anyone that you went with like actually golf, like knows how to golf? Oh, yeah. Everyone that oh, okay. we went with. Go- okay. I mean, I was there with like Cash and I didn't know patron if they were like, this Jessie. is what you do. <laughs> yeah, no. Everyone but me was great at it, including okay. the children. <laughs> the children awesome. were like deciding which clubs they were going to use and asking if they could take our turns because they were really good at it. And I was oh like, yeah, sure. Gosh. Yeah, both that's seven-year-olds so did better than me. Mm, that's fine. <laughs> it is a very fun place, especially if you're just like drinking and doing that. Yeah, I was surprised at how fun it was because I don't think I would like to golf on a golf course. No, fuck that. That sounds boring. Not if it was hot. Ew. Not into it. <laughs> I feel like we were both going to start talking. <laughs> I was going to say, do we have anything else before we get started? I think we do. Uh, I was going to segue. Speaking of patrons, um, thanks for, first of all, lovely time this weekend. Patron Jesse, last weekend. <laughs> Uh, we have three new patrons to welcome to our weird little corner of the internet. Yay. So thank you to Evie, Dr. Shiloh, and Leanne for hanging out with us extracurricular yeah. after school special. This Thanks, uh, this month is going to be a good one. Their inaugural patron episode, if you guys aren't already binging the backlog, is going to be uh, an examination of Law & Order SVU cases that were ripped from the headlines Regardless yes. of their disclaimer in the credits. <laughs> <laughs> so excited to hear that. I am too. I'm really liking this crossover of like last time we were on Get Vocal, we did uh, crimes related to people who have appeared on 90 Day Fiance and various spinoffs. And now yes. we're doing Law and Order SVU rip from the headline. Yes. I really like this TV true crime. Yeah. I like it a lot. Yeah, totally. It's fun. And I'm still I'm into it binging the shit out of 90 day fiance i just started happily ever after and me and laney from true crime fan club are gonna have to have some talks about some people's (laughs) behavior oh my gosh i feel like between anymore her and our friend jenny it's just gonna be we need to start a whole new chat room (laughs) (laughs) i am on season 13 i got to season 13 of law and order Oh, I'm still hanging out on like seven. Leaves. So sad. I don't know how long he's gone though, because I'm like, wait, he leaves in season thirteen. That cannot be. No, I think it is. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, because I remember like season fifteen was coming out when I was like in college. Oh fuck. 
Ooh, yeah. I didn't even think of that. Oh, my God. Ugh. God, he is such a gem. Yeah. I feel yeah. like, much like little Nikki and Harry Potter and the only other 10 things I like on Earth, um, <laughs> hey, I'm consistent. Wet Hot American Summer. I've probably referenced it 30 times. But if you want to watch some <laughs> Christopher Maloney in a complete unhinged separation oh, so great from anything that he's ever yeah. done before that yeah <laughs> do it it's so good well shall we yes we after shall. all With this that. time <laughs> so when we left off norma was hustling to navigate the constantly changing regulation and public perception of sex work in new orleans she had been arrested a few times purchased a new house, and it seemed like they were easing into a period of grace with local officials. Author Jack Stewart spoke to the author Christine Wiltz about the corrupt local political system in New Orleans, saying that it was always the same thing. Someone would have high intentions, get elected by swearing to come in and clean everything up with cries of, take back the city, and then realize there was no way to move forward because everyone was in someone else's pocket. At one point, Norma was so embedded with police that the beat cops working her corner would come take naps in empty rooms and say, mm, hey, here's Norma's phone number. Call her if anything bad happens. She'll oh wake God. us up. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I mean, that just says it all, that the yeah. police are the ones tasked with, quote, cleaning up the streets. And they're like, yeah, just call Norma, that woman that yeah. we can't arrest ever. Right. So here is, I, this has to be a record. Four sentences in, here I come with that <laughs> bullshit. <laughs> So I said, there's a lot of interesting, if you love fucking boring, droning stories about local politics. And then I had to clarify, this is a comment I directed at myself, not the author. I love right. her for giving me this context. So there's a lot of interesting backstory about Huey Long being elected governor in 1928. Basically, he was loved for his cleanup efforts everywhere but New Orleans. So he had to devise a plan to take over. So a guy named Walmsley is elected mayor of New Orleans in 1930, and he and Long hate each other. Long was a fucking turd, in my opinion. <laughs> he withheld funds from New Orleans while the nation was collectively suffering through the Great Depression. He stopped banks from lending to the city, and he wouldn't pay the garbage men, so the city was literally buried in trash. He also called Walmsley turkey head to the media. Oh this is <laughs> so juvenile. This crackdown on vice led local cops caught in the middle to warn landladies like Norma to vacate their businesses as they had been running them until things cooled off. So she rented a tiny apartment nearby and would dispatch three to four girls at a time there to host dates. It was described as a gloomy and small place with one of the girls complaining to Norma that there wasn't even enough space to all of them. So she had turned her trick on an ironing board, but it oh, was not yeah. an ironing board. Yeah. <laughs> Can't. <laughs> The apartment was owned by an undertaker, and it was a slab for medical exams. Norma said, quote, you should have seen those whores running out of that building. <laughs> oh, I forgot about that part. That's funny. It is funny. I love her appreciation of like, yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's just like, you're fine. <laughs> so we meet one of our uh, many star-studded characters here. Marjorie Rambo had been warned by her husband to not even get off the train in the wicked city of New Orleans, so naturally she did, and got in a taxi to visit Norma and her girls. Marjorie was an actress from the age of 12 and is described in her IMDb bio as an underappreciated character player. 
In her eventual death announcement, the New York Times described her as a generously proportioned woman who played innumerable character roles. (laughs) What the fuck? Dicks. (laughs) A bunch of dicks. Oh my god. Wow. I mean, I guess I get it. You want to describe that she was a character actor, but like, eh. (laughs) Yeah. So as soon as Marjorie sat down in Norma's parlor, she tossed out a $100 bill and asked for a bottle of champagne. She said she couldn't stay long. She and her companion, who was a random woman who is not named, they had to take the last Sunset Unlimited train to L.A., but they made no signs of leaving when the time came. They asked for the entertainment of every girl in the house, and they spent the entire evening drinking and dancing. Norma didn't want this celebrity to feel bad the next morning if she were to fall asleep in one of the girls' rooms at the house, so she called for a trusted cab driver to take Marjorie and her friend to the Roosevelt Hotel. And she made a big point of telling everyone in the house, the driver, I think the driver was one of her girls' boyfriends, but she was like, you listen here. I know exactly how much money she spent, and I know every ring on her finger. So (laughs) she better wake up in good condition tomorrow because you're not bringing any shit to my doorstep. So after she left, Norma stayed up counting the money from that evening, $30,000. She thought she would hang on to it in cash for a day in case Marjorie came back and threw a fit. And that was a good plan because it was just two days later when she did return, and Norma was getting ready to run to the bank. She came in howling and accusing Norma of stealing from her. For context, Marjorie had spent an entire day in bed eating beef broth because she was so hungover. Oh. (laughs) Which, like, relate. (laughs) Hate it so much. She didn't even remember going to Norma's. She had to call the cab company and ask where they dropped her off. So she runs in and accuses Norma of rolling her, and Norma gets pissed, but never lets her exterior crack. She demands her money back and strolls over to the phone. And Norma followed her and said, who exactly do you think you're going to call about this that I can't call right after and tell them everything you did here? When Marjorie replied, I'm calling the police, Norma said, you know, if you hadn't tried to muscle me, I might have considered what you had to say. But if you pick up that phone, I'll call the times right after you hang up. I have nothing to lose. What about you? Which like... Big dick energy. (laughs) Always. Constantly. This is just like her constant state of being. Yes. Like, I don't give a shit about what you're going to do to me because I can get you harder. Yeah. Which is not always nice. But it is refreshing for uh, this time period to read about someone who was just like, try me. Yeah. So Rambo tried to sweet talk Norma for a while, but threatened her again that the bills were marked and would be reported. Norma said to hell with her and said, if I can't cash those in, shame on you and you'll read about it. If you hadn't been hostile, I might have given you some of the money back, but now I've decided there's nothing you can do about it. So Norma invested most of that money. Um, I'm not really sure what the equation she was using for the split was, but out of that 30 grand, she kept 24,000 for herself and the girls and the cab driver split six grand. Jeez. Which like, oh, <laughs> that's not great. <laughs> no, uh, I'm guessing though. It was like whatever she kind of she was planning on giving her half the money back if she came back the next day and was like, are you fucking kidding me? So I'm assuming. Yeah. Well, I'm assuming that like whatever the the tally was for what the girls were owed, everything after that. Norma was like, we're just going to put that in my pile. Yeah. Makes sense. So the Great Depression is taking its toll right now in the French Quarter It is now a slum, deteriorated and crushed by poverty. Out-of-towners were grateful to find the opulence of Norma's establishment amid the rest of the decay. 
She seemed prepared for this financial crisis, but there were still raids to deal with every now and then. Governor Long and Mayor Walmsley were still fighting about how to control New Orleans. And when the houses were raided, Norma had a plan. Her girls would slide planks from a balcony on the second floor of the house into a neighbor's second floor. Norma would fuss around and stall the cops until they entered a completely empty building. Governor Long was assassinated in 1935, and Walmsley agreed to resign to Long's replacement. And in exchange, some of the ties that were holding up money that could have been flowing into New Orleans were cut, and order seemed to be restored. Huey Long is an interesting and complicated character. <laughs> I wrote myself a note for this section. <laughs> so, again, uh, the way that we split this book was in half, and the front half is me. So. Yes. This is to myself, I said, you're learning with me in real time. I called him a turd three paragraphs ago, but it's not that simple. <laughs> he seemed to have a lot of contradictory beliefs. He funded a program to get children free textbooks by taxing oil by the barrel. And in return, his opponents called for his impeachment. And he did seem to do a lot of other shady shit concerning moving money around. But I don't I don't really know what to think about him overall. I mean, he just seems like every other like politics dickhead. Right. But he did do a lot of like pro social like okay. like a lot of social services. I mean, you know, nothing to help out sex workers, but Well no, but he was angling for like better conditions for children. <clears throat> okay. Um, okay. So um this is a little bit of back information. Like from this is just like a fun side story about him. So from the legislature session about the oil tax to fund the books, the session is called to vote on the tax, but instead he is met with 19 different charges for impeachment. Prolonged speaker John Fournay was like, this is a bunch of trash. I've moved to vote that we abandon the impeachment and adjourn this meeting. Then when they're voting, they realize someone has tampered with the voting box to flip all the answers. So everyone who voted yes actually voted no and vice versa oh my god so someone loses it and starts screaming and everyone gets pissed and a fight breaks out with several reps being hit with brass knuckles and inkwells being thrown at people's faces what which like fuck why is drunk history canceled there's still so much we have left to learn (laughs) true so they do vote to impeach him on eight of 19 items but it dies in the senate and he goes on to win a senate seat in 1930 he proposed a share the wealth plan there uh and it proposed a progressive tax code designed to cap personal fortunes at $100 million. Which I was oh. like, hmm, hmm, makes a lot of sense, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, then. <laughs> <laughs> really interesting if you want to go back yeah. in time and be like, how did we get here? <laughs> oh, God. So back to Norma. In the beginning of the Great Depression, she isn't affected at all. For as many customers as she loses, she gains them as people less affected travel to the South for conventions. They had run-ins with a group of undertakers, of whom at least one asked a girl to lie completely still and keep herself chilly. Oof. (laughs) (laughs) So chilling, like literally to the bone. And a Baptist preacher who ended up having the clap and cried to Norma that he didn't know where he got it. She suggested he had a serious conversation with his wife when he returned home. Another subset of customers from the many conventions in town were couples looking for a different style of entertainment. What started as dancing for customers in parlor became a more elevated experience. Norma had one of her girls named Jackie use her classical training in ballet to artfully remove a negligee, a crowd favorite. Quickly escalating, they held what Norma called fake sex shows, where they would have a gay actor come to the house and have sex with the girls in front of an audience. She seemed to think that if the guy didn't finish, it was fake. 
<laughs> which like i know what i mean there's no further so information given up having orgies yeah yeah like in front of an audience in front of an audience like there's no mention anywhere of like how it was faked i think it's just right. she thinks like okay this guy went outside and used a right penis because pump. he was gay yeah he he and he wasn't gonna like get off then like they didn't have sex but like no they they definitely did have sex <laughs> yep yep they did for money in front of an audience in i'm a fan of, of it audience. yeah <laughs> right after her upswing in business norma finally opened a bank account it was 1933 and it seemed she had escaped most of the effects of the great depression but she was knocked down one more time she recalled in the lead up to mardi gras in quotes in new orleans i think they waited until every last cent had been put in the banks and then they folded Norma lost $90,000, but still had a little socked around and used it, help, used it to help her friends, bartenders and cab drivers who had it much worse than she did. Relief came in the form of repeal in December of 1933 with the overturn of the Volstead Act. Norma once again legally ran her bar in the front of the house. So we're in 1936 now. Norma recovered from her losses and came back slicker than ever. In 1936, Robert Maestri. Yeah, I think that? it's maestri. Maestri. Or I guess if, like, if you're maestri. going off of like maestro, it would be maestri. Maestri. Robert Maestri, the furniture store owner where she bought her fine furnishings for all her addresses, was elected mayor. He seemed to be everyone's man. He was able to support the arts and reduce the city's debt while beginning to restore cash flow and the economy. Norma kept buying from him at a markup and equilibrium was maintained. 1936 also saw a flash of drama in the Tango Belt of New Orleans when rumors began creeping through town that a wanted criminal was hanging out in their neighborhood. Alvin Carpus, born in 1907, had based, had, based on his profile on the Alcatraz History website, chosen to throw himself into being a career criminal at the age of 10, tagging along with bootleggers and pimps to run errands. He got his first major sentence at 19 for an attempted burglary and was sentenced to 10 years in the state industrial reformatory in Kansas. At some point in that sentence, he and another inmate escaped and went on another year-long crime spree. He ended up at a different prison in Kansas, and that's where he met Fred Barker of the Barker Gang. He was released in 31 and set out with the gang to commit some high-profile kidnappings. In 1933, they kidnapped a millionaire in the brewing industry, William Ham Jr. from Minnesota. President of Ham's Brewery, he was walking up the steps one day when four men threw a bag over his head and forced him into the back of a van. They kept him for a few days and forced him to write four ransom notes, each demanding $100,000. They got their money and let him go. Just as the whole story of Huey Long is interesting, this is a good one to look up. Cops were in on the plot. One, off, one official received 25000 of the total ransom. Their second kidnap victim was Edward Bremer. I think it's Bremer. 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 Their second kidnap victim was Edward Bremer Jr., also from Minnesota. Like Ham, he was a brewing heir and worth millions. In a near-identical situation to Ham, they took Bremer right after he dropped his daughter off at school and was alone. They netted 200000 released him, and moved on with plenty of cash to keep participating in running bootlegger schemes. Kicked into action spurred from the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby, J. Edgar Hoover himself put out a call to the, all police chiefs in the country to keep their eyes out for a new addition to the FBI's most wanted list, Alvin Karpus. <clears throat> he was seen around in New Orleans after his description was released, partially from the note that he was wearing an ornate, gigantic diamond ring 
Known for hanging out at cat houses, Norma had a high roller come in one evening. She said she figured he was a crook of some kind, but she saw his picture a day or two after he visited her house and called the local police chief, George Rayer. The way the Alcatraz history site tells it, not a single officer brought handcuffs with them the day of his capture because they assumed or planned on killing him like other members of the Barker gang. He was supposedly restrained with an officer's necktie. Rayer gained the attention and respect of the FBI, and in turn, Norma gained a powerful share of influence that couldn't be bought. She walked a tightrope of exchanging favors with the cops with grace and perfect balance. Her relationships with law enforcement solidified her status as respected, and she, quote, at 35 years old, became one of the most powerful women in the underworld. That just makes me more excited than it should. <laughs> like, I should not identify with her so much. I keep reminding myself through all of this, like, we're only getting a look at her. Like, you know, it's portrayed as like, all the girls loved her. She was like their mother figure. Oh, right. And nobody was ever coerced right. into sex work. And like, right. she's this empire, like. Yes. Yeah. But I'm also like, oh, I bet it's not that nice. <laughs> no. I shouldn't like it. not. But I also like it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's hard not to. Well, and it's coming from her like right you know most of this book is written like there are definitely some people who were talked to but a lot of it's her tapes that she recorded of herself right like, so she's writing her, her own action movie yes yes which is completely With what she wanted as the star yeah, yes and the hero <laughs> which i think it's what it's why it's so easy to read or like listen to us talk about it and be like oh my gosh how romantic and fun yeah yeah <sighs> which speaking of romantic Though Norma was technically married for the first time in 1928, she never spoke of that husband. It didn't last long, and Alex Zolman didn't play a huge role in her life. For all her marriages, five in total, Christine Wells writes that it might have been that Norma didn't marry the men she cared most about. After Andy Wallace shot her in the ankle and she left him, she met her next great love at the Blue Room, Phil Harris. He was a well-known singer and actor in the 30s, and he had eyes for Norma as soon as she walked into his show. This description, this is like the first moment in this book where I was just like, fuck, this is the life I'm trying to live. They describe like the band changing their song when they saw her at the door walking in with her girls and said that she didn't even pause to take her coat off. Right. And like this is part of the story that you get the sense that Christine Wiltz is interviewing other people. Yeah. Yeah. It's not Norma describing this one because it's all third party. Yeah. She drops her coat without looking behind her. Just assuming that a waiter will be there to catch like it. someone will be there, yeah. Yes. So the music changes when they walk in. Uh, the piano man plays Be Still My Heart. And Phil made several jokes throughout the show about going to see the Queen on Dauphine later that night. And everyone in the audience was in on it. Everyone in New Orleans knew that that Queen was Norma. So Norma and Phil would call on each other for years when he was in New Orleans or when she could travel to New York or L.A. She taught him how to ride a horse and they liked to drink absinthe together. They were both so married to their careers, they knew neither could give anything up. Norma said, quote, I could have never given it up for love or money. I liked what I was doing. I liked the excitement of it all. So we enjoyed each other better, knowing that it wasn't forever. Norma's next man, Sam Hunt, came screaming into her life after a bad date with one of her girls. She sent a quick-thinking brunette named Eileen when a request came in from her ex, Louie, for a, quote, smart cookie with athletic capabilities. She returned from the date the next morning and said she'd never see that man again. He was rude and said, quote, rumor had it he was one of Capone's men. So, like, 
instantaneously. Yeah. Again, my eyes are huge. And I was like, what? <laughs> what? Because yeah. I think there's a big like disconnect between, I don't know, what you consider like people who are into true crime and like mob and mafia shit. Right. A lot of people don't like it. Yeah. They're, well, because it's not, it's not the typical, there's nothing different about that story. It's like, it's your job right. to kill someone. So yes. you do it, you roll them up in the rug and that's the end of it. I am obsessed. <laughs> I have a book from Las Vegas that I bought when I was on vacation there about like all the different families and oh how they God. were tied to like New York, Las Vegas, yeah. and Chicago. Yeah. It's very interesting. Obsessed. I'm interested in that. I'm just interested in that like, yeah, like family ties. That's what the book's called. With Oh my God, no way. Yeah. <laughs> with, That's what like, it's called. In, with crime. Like you're just born into this life. Yes. Like or no escaping. E- almost more and interesting to me. People on the fringes who want to be part of it, like Richard yes. Kuklinski. Yes. Love interesting. it. <laughs> yeah. So later that day, when Eileen picked up the ringing phone, she said, it's him, the Vidalia with the machine gun. Norma promptly told him to fuck off. We're not doing business with you. And he answered, I'm coming down there to beat your teeth in. So Norma grabbed her shotgun and waited. And Sam did show up that night after she put the shotgun down. After she'd like waited for hours carrying yes. down that shotgun and then finally put it down and then he fucking shows up. Like, of course that would happen. She said her first thought was, oh shit, where did I put the gun? <laughs> he had cruel, icy blue eyes and within a half hour of his entrance, neither could remember what they were angry about. They went everywhere together for a week after that. After that week of dinner dates, Norma was getting suspicious that Sam wouldn't actually sleep with her. And this is... One of my favorite quotes from the book. (laughs) She says to him as they're laying in bed together, Sam, there's almost nothing I like more than laying here and being petted. (laughs) And then she said again, almost nothing. (laughs) (laughs) And he replied, Norma, I'll never lay you until I know that you really care for me, that you're not just turning a trick with me. I care too much. The gangster, it seemed, was a romantic. And then Christine Wiltz goes on, to describe how they finally have sex on a train to Texas to watch races in San Antonio. <laughs> Apparently leaving town with him was enough of a sign for Sam. It just talks about how as soon as they got into their carriage, yes. their like private room, they just yeah. like fucked for the whole 12 hours. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which at this point, I don't know. I can't remember how old she is. It's what, like 36, 37? So she yeah. is like 36. Yeah, she's late 30s. Mm, yeah. Into it. Yeah. <laughs> leaving town to go on vacation with a gangster to watch the races right i could never i'm so boring (laughs) i could never (laughs) oh my god i hate myself every time someone or i say i could never or you could never like do you have you seen the video do you know you know who bad baby is yeah yeah do you know who whoa vicky is (laughs) no Okay, I'll save it. There's just a really good video of her on the internet. Anyone who knows who Will Vicky is right now is screaming. She's in a lot of fight videos. Oh my god. She's like 19 and is just is. just a treat for problematic <laughs> problematic everything entertainment. Oh and god. she has a video of like her she's like hyping herself up in front of the mirror in an outfit where she's like squatted down on the floor and looking back at it and she yeah. says you pussy ass house could never <laughs> okay i love that though i know okay well and that's like the energy i'm imagining norma with the whole time yes yes <laughs> absolutely when you see well vicky you're gonna cry <laughs> uh, i need to watch this 
I'll send you some links. Okay, okay. <laughs> so we do find out that Sam is married, but he and his wife got together when they were young and they aren't really happy. And Norma's okay with that because she isn't trying to be a kept woman. So being around him more, she hears rumors that he was involved in the St. Valentine's Day massacre and he spent time in the Cook County Jail. Norma's ex, Louie, did some digging and confirmed that he was indeed Golf Bag Sam, so named for keeping his machine gun hidden with his golf clubs. Norma and Sam get to the point that pushes them in their freewheeling relationship. They were both too attached. Leaving each other after trips meant jealousy and fights, and Sam did not hold back. One night at her farm in Pearl River, after she had left Sam earlier in the day for a flight to Chicago, she heard a car pull up and someone banging on her door. Sam threatened to break down the fucking door to make sure she was alone, and his crazy ass saw her talking to a pilot earlier that day, but it was too late for him to get off the plane, so he flew to Chicago and then turned right back around and took the first flight to New Orleans to confront her. After bad. this expl- It's insane. So bad. <laughs> Toxic. <laughs> it's not. It's a textbook definition. <laughs> yeah. After this explosive fight, Norma sought <clears throat> solace and advice for, quote, being in love with a lunatic gangster from someone in her past. Pete Herman. So from the first episode, Pete is the partially blind prize fighter that she dates and opens up shop with. Um, I can't remember on like Royal and Canal. Maybe those were the cross streets. Probably wrong. But Pete took his chance and hearing her confusion and frustration about Sam, his answer to her was to ask if she would marry him. And then I said, Norma doesn't seem the type to be easily manipulated, but that's gross. Yeah. Norma apparently fondly remembered one night they spent on the roof of his bar practicing self-defense. Norma knew he was almost completely blind and punched him in the face anyway when she had her chance. (laughs) With this memory and the realization that she and Sam would never work out, she said yes. Sam simply wanted too much from her, and no matter how much she loved him, she was not ready to exit the life of a successful madam. Now, not to overly romanticize violence here, but I did get very caught up reading about their wedding announcement. They were married on July 28, 1936, and Norma received a telegram from Phil Harris that said, I heard I missed out again, Mm. which just like (sighs) dreams. (laughs) But here's the bad part. Phil wasn't the only person she heard from. Sam Hunt heard about the marriage and was spitting angry. One Sunday, when Pete and Norma were enjoying their weekly horse rides out at the farm, she called to check in on the girls and was surprised to hear Jackie say, uh, yeah, we have a big fucking problem today. Sam is here and he lit the couch on fire. Psycho. (laughs) And apparently he is literally like lighting a fire. Jackie's following him around with water and putting them out and then he'll just start another one, which is like the slowest and most anticlimactic arsonist ever. (laughs) Was he hammered drunk? I'm just imagining him like an overgrown Boy Scout in the corner like, yeah, bitch, I'll light your fucking couch on fire. But he doesn't have a lighter, so he's just rubbing two sticks together. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But he... Oh, nope, I skipped a line. So Norma ultimately decides to let Jackie handle it, even after Jackie says to her, he said he's going to wreck the place. He's just sitting here with his gun so drunk he's out of his mind. I was really surprised that Norma was just like... You got it. I'm good. She has surprising moments where she, like, relinquishes control. And, like, you could say it as relinquishing control or stops giving a fuck. Like, it's not my problem. Yeah. I wonder if she thought the situation would just be worse if she was there. Possibly. And it made me think about the time that she dealt with that guy dying 
in yeah. Bertha's house. And yeah. she was like, here's your time to shine, Jackie. Figure it out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> she was probably just like, it's time for another bitch to deal with this. Yeah. Yeah. So Sam eventually did leave, but he wasn't finished. Norma returned on Monday, and after a quiet, full day with no sign of him, she finally stepped outside the steps of 410 Dauphine around 1 a.m. She walked down to the sidewalk and was blinded by headlights. She scrambled back to the top of the steps just in time. A car crunched into the side of the building, and Norma started making calls for help. She warned Pete and called, uh, he called a sharpshooting friend and Philip, Sam's driver. Sam got to the club first and shot into it from the street. His driver, Philip, showed up right after and persuaded Sam to get in the car and leave before he caught a murder charge. And that this is hands down my favorite quote from the entire book. Norma thought it was over. She'd never see Sam again. But she'd have her memories of their torrid nights together, and she'd never take off the diamond ring he'd given her, a five-and-a-half-carat rock to help balance out the seven-carat memory of Andy Wallace on her other hand. God damn cardi b would approve (laughs) married to one sweet man and then wearing the rings of your lovers seriously constant constant i want it yeah i barely have the tolerance to deal with one romantic partner but also somehow (laughs) let me have that (laughs) Uh, yeah so breezing through this next bit unfortunately norma and pete didn't last long wonder why (laughs) norma had this to say about herself in relationships quote When I love, I want to be all of it. I can dish it out, but I can't take it. I'm the sort of person who never should have been married in the first place. I'm a lot like a man. I like the freedom of affairs. And about Pete specifically, she said he was a great person and her love for him was amplified by sympathy for his blindness. She said, I would do anything for him except stay married. Which like, like what? (laughs) Okay. I feel you. Uh, Norma couldn't even remember her next husband's last name when she was retelling her life story to Clint Bolton of the New Orleans Mag, so we're skipping him. Hilarious. Like, <laughs> I think I oh do use God. his name later, so we'll talk about it, but like, we know nothing about him. We know nothing, no. And no one cares. No. A few months after the word of her divorce from Pete made it around, a gift showed up for Norma, a diamond watch on a gold chain from Sam Hunt. She immediately ran out and bought him a money clip in return and talked tough about not taking him back, but he showed up in front of their house again shortly after. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. So in the late 30s, the landscape of the French Quarter is changing again. There's still a lot of poverty, but the Vucar Commission, Vucare. Vucare Commission 
took effect in 1937, reinforcing that wherever possible, historic buildings should be maintained, not demolished for more attainable housing for residents still knocked down from the Depression. Good and bad. This move forced a lot of poor people out of their bohemian lifestyle, and the French Quarter became a tourism hotspot. This time is when Norma finds her new perfect residence at 1026 Conti Street. It was near a bus and a train station and surrounded by bars, and had a history that seemed like fate. It used to be owned by Ernst Bullock. Bullock? Yeah, I think so. Ernest Bullock. It used to be owned by Ernest Bullock, a photographer who was famous for taking photos of the prostitutes of Storyville in the 1910s. Let's hit this section off with calling Norma out. The previous owners of the house were black, and Norma thought that was the explanation for why the property needed updates and repairs. Sam bought her the house and helped her and helped pay to fix it up and get new furniture for all the rooms. By New Year's Eve leading into 1939, the house was open and Norma was hustling hard with the girls to get clients in and out. Sam was really pissed she wouldn't leave to go out with him on New Year's Eve. So he drank himself stupid and came back ready to fight. Norma was sitting on some guy's lap and he came right up to her and cussed her out. He made a big show of throwing her house key at her and going back out to drink more. But he came back and beat two cabbies' asses in the alley. (laughs) In quotes, he had a bad habit of kicking people, which I detest. He barged back in, tearing through the house, yelling at people to get the fuck out if they knew what was good for them. Couples enjoying the show and Johns and girls alike ran from the house half-dressed. Norma had never been so disrespected. So he left again, drank more B&Bs, and came back one last time. As soon as Norma opened the door to tell him off, he reached in and slapped her in the face. This was the moment it all ended. Norma would not let anyone fuck with her business or treat her like shit in her own house. She said Sam was just as sad about what he'd done as she was. They knew they couldn't be together if they were going to be violent, so they ended it and never saw each other again. There are conflicting stories on if Sam later died in a shootout or from pneumonia. Christine Wiltz says it was a shootout, but a couple other places listed pneumonia, so I don't know. So as the 30s rolled into the 40s and the World War progressed, Norma did better than ever in business. She spent a small fortune on her Conti Street house, even acquiring a bit of New Orleans landlady lore and scoring a bed that had supposedly belonged to Josie Arlington. Arlington was another well-known madam, and reading about her was really depressing. Uh, It's just very problematic all around. Yeah. I mean, just the the article itself was like, she entered the sex work industry when she was 10 years old. And I was like, hi, no the fuck she didn't. No, no. (laughs) It was like, look at this entrepreneur. And I was like, no, No. look at this child victim. (laughs) Yeah. But wherever the bed had come from, it was a gigantic brass monstrosity with a canopy on top that housed a mirror. Norma put it in her own bedroom in the house and then thought, fuck, this is 30 years too late. So (laughs) she had it moved into the parlor, covered this thing in lights, and then had it set up on a revolving platform. Insane. A lot of people said that they would pay to go into Norma's house just to look at the bed. Just to, yeah, just to and see And then it. they were like, well, we were already there, so. <laughs> so the mid-40s was a time full of drinking, gambling, and open prostitution in New Orleans. Under the rule of Maestri as mayor, Norma and the rest of the underworld had free reign. Enter Mayor Chep Morrison. He campaigned against Maestri in 1945 with a campaign entitled A Clean Sweep for Morrison. This shit included uptight women marching through the streets with their brooms in a show of solidarity for, once again, anyone who would attempt to clean up the city. Fuck that. Yeah, literally fuck that. 
I just am not interested. No. <laughs> like, like stay at home and mind your business. Else. Yeah, literally. You don't even go there. Uh, no. I'm sure whoever was campaigning in the street with a broom has never been inside a whorehouse. No. <laughs> so it was bad news for the landladies when he won office. After getting support from a man that ran a house in town, Morrison went back on his word to let him operate and instead shut him down. There was talk that only one of Morrison's campaign donors would be allowed to operate while he was mayor, and everyone else would be subject to one of the harshest crackdowns yet. So Norma decided to walk away. This, of course, coincided with a new relationship with a man named Charles McCoy, who was, quote, heart-stoppingly handsome. He was a 35-year-old cop. Norma has a thing for cops. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As we come to find out, the people she yeah. detests most are who she likes a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was the 35-year-old cop when he met Norma and forgot about his family in Washington when they started talking marriage. As she did, Norma found a lawyer who was able to secure her a divorce from Bill Carver, the mystery man. <laughs> and uh, one of their properties, she got one of his properties in a split. And that lawyer also got McCoy released from the military somehow. With that, Norma sold Carver's house that she got, and she and McCoy moved to the Pearl River Farm full-time to run it as a dairy operation. Norma's mother, apparently doing better in life at this point, moved into the luxurious Conti Street residence and ran it as a boarding house. The whole family went clean. Norma tolerated five years of milking cows and canning veggies before she blew up one day and gave away all their canned food and told McCoy, uh, you're going to have to figure something else out because the farm is failing and I'm going back to the city. <laughs> and McCoy replied, living with you is like sitting on a keg of dynamite. True. But I uh, cannot imagine mad. that. <laughs> Very much so. But he agreed to go with her, but he did give her an ultimatum that if she ever got arrested again, he would leave her. Norma waved him off and was like, come on, I know a place. <laughs> Within no time, Norma was back at it again on Conti Street. Pete Herman's brother, Gaspar Gulotta, had spent the last four years seeking Morrison's favor and being the middleman for the brass and the heavyweights of the underworld. He made progress for Morrison where it wouldn't have happened otherwise and in return could often get his own friends a blind eye. There aren't a ton of stories from the late 40s, but one from Norma's house demonstrates how instantaneously she was back on top of her game. One night when several mayors from other cities and countries were in town for some kind of convention. I think it's just listed as a mayor's convention, which like, what the fuck do you do at a mayor's convention? Drink and eat. They <laughs> drink and drink and go to a house. Yeah. <laughs> they ended a night of drinking at Norma's house. The police were snooping around the front of her building and she called Gaspar to say, hey, get with Morrison and tell him to call that shit off immediately or it could cause an international incident because one of the men seeking entertainment from her girls that night was the mayor of Barcelona. Mm. She was like, there are literally 12 mayors in this house from different countries. (laughs) And I don't want to think about what's going to happen when all of them get arrested at my house. Like I am not trying to have this publicity and stop whatever their, you know, whatever duties they have to uphold when they go home. She was like, no, you're not putting this on me. So, As it went to New Orleans, more drama continued to change the landscape of where and how landladies and their girls could work. Morrison went on a spree of acknowledging public concern about crime and vice by firing and hiring several different police chiefs, each more rigid than the next. But then he would hamstring them and stop them from getting anything done. Morrison seems to be really great at doing one thing for public image and then letting vice run the city undercover. After a murder by chloral hydrate tablets at a bar in the French Quarter... A citizens' committee was put together to help them be more involved in stopping crime. 
Along with this committee came an ordinance that guaranteed jail time for landladies, sex workers, and the men who bought their services. There was a big investigation into the police when it came out that despite Morrison's high and mighty talk about ending prostitution, there were at least 17 houses running in town with police protection. (laughs) And then police officers protecting sex workers aside, let's examine the insane theft, bribes, and blackmail that happened in the police force in just New Orleans in 1950, and you can see why policing as an institution in America has never been a clean operation. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that could be a whole, like, multi-part series itself, is how much illegal activity the police were doing. Oh, yeah. Like, just in this book. In just in this just 170, in this one. <laughs> like, 60, 70-year yeah. span in New Orleans in one city. Yeah. That's, I put in many American cities, cops have been tied to crooks since their inception. Yes. yes. It would just, you couldn't ever break free in New Orleans. Everyone was too no. entrenched. No. So Norma moved again. She bought a house uptown. I don't know what uptown means. I don't either. And used Conti Street to host acts that performed at the Blue Room. She still made a ton of money off that and continued to run her new house through a citizens committee probe that scared everyone else out of operation. So... There was the first, like, committee, and then there was a second one, and in conjunction with the actual city officials, they hired Aaron Cohn, a lawyer and former FBI agent. He had just spent 10 months investigating the Chicago police force for internal corruption, and so basically every cop alive in New Orleans was in on dirty dealings. (laughs) So he spends all this time, like, tracking everyone down, keeping notes on all of them, and there's a bunch of hearings about, like, I don't really know, like, what context the hearings were happening under, but a bunch of people in their circle had to testify, mm-hmm. and the way that they tell it, Gaspar Gulata, Pete Herman's brother, had the time of his life on the stand, <laughs> that he didn't lie about anything and was like, yeah, I always said I'm not here to bullshit. I'm not like you people. Oh I'm here God. to tell the truth. Yeah. He said... There are a thousand cops in New Orleans, and I know 950, and the other 50 know me. <laughs> he is described oh as like God. a like kind of a chubby short guy that yeah. always had a cigar in his mouth, and I think I like him a lot. Oh, for sure. So Joe, nicknamed Big Mo, Gio, was added to the force in New Orleans after that poisoning death happened at a French Quarter bar. He was called Big Mo because his voice was as loud as cannons on the battleship Missouri. The landladies didn't mind Big Mo at first because he targeted pimps. That freed up the streets for their business, and Norma rolled her eyes at the others on the street when they sent him Christmas presents. Norma knew not to make calls too early, and she was right. Sensing that no good deed would go unpunished, she tried to stay out of it, but the call to attention from the gifts brought more raids to their houses. Norma had a hiding spot at Conti Street, unshockingly. It was a hidden room behind her parlor. It could be accessed from the courtyard and was once used as a passage to the literal dungeon where she casually mentions that it's where the slaves used to be chained up. Casual. Oh, my God. The book gets worse and worse. Yeah, like, not great (laughs) comments. And I don't know why she didn't, like, explain more of those or, like, filter them out because it is, like, well, what the fuck? Like, oh, I think it's because she's it. it's telling like, this story in 1960-something, and she doesn't give a shit. <laughs> yeah, I guess. So she had this area fitted with a seamless gate entrance and had a buzzer system installed. Anytime a cop pulled into the alley, the front desk girl would ring the buzzer, and all the girls would run to either the hidden room or a derelict building nearby that Norma quietly rented. The girls would slip behind an old piece of plywood and wait out raids there. Though she was careful, Norma wasn't always quick enough. 
She was arrested three times by Big Mo in 1953. One really fun incident that stressed Norma out involved a peculiar client they had every Saturday night. He was a family man that would come and pay for the company of five to six girls, but he never took them to bed. Instead, he wanted to dress in their clothes and just hang out. Norma loved him and bought him his own clothes to have for their Saturday night parties. Yeah, so one night he is there and this happens. A raid happens. So they have to rush this man. She is so worried about this man because he is in his fucking heels, click clacking down the floor <laughs> in like a women's lingerie and a wig. And they're rushing him into this room. And she's just like, oh, my fucking God, like this will ruin his life. Like not just ruin, like we can all handle this shit. This will ruin his life. But also he is a paying customer who is here every Saturday. And all we have to do is play dress up. Like I can't imagine losing that customer. I know. And they said his clothes were still on the bed. So there's like the added stress. She said, Jackie, I am not comfortable enough right now to lie to these cops. She's she's like, I can't tell Big Mo that you wear women's or that you wear men's pants. (laughs) Go get them. Do whatever you have to do to get those pants out of this house. Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, so yeah, we said that. Da, 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 da. Okay, so he came. He came out of the room after the raid was over. He came out of the room and cried, "I'm Madeline, a girl in a raid," and ran back upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> what is that part? Do you want to oh, explain that? Oh yeah. Um, I I mean I didn't know about it until I read this, but there was a raid by. Oh, I always say the word wrong. Iroquois. Yeah, I think that's right. The Iroquois people, when um, in present day Canada, there was a raid that happened there. And uh, Madeline was a 14 year old girl that like held steadfast against the Iroquois people when they were settling Canada. Uh, okay. So she was, her like, her dad or whoever was in charge was gone. Yeah. And she was like eldest in command that night at 14 years old and managed to Jeez. save people's lives or something. Jeez. So interesting. Uh, yeah, so he was just, like, super excited for this raid, though, that he was, like, actually a part of it. But also, like, they didn't get found, so that's also probably why <laughs> he was like, no, that was fun. <laughs> so by 1954, Norma and Max's marriage was in trouble after 10 years of a power struggle. Norma had been arrested multiple times and made the front page of the paper each time. Mac had been arrested, too, for chauffeuring her girls around, and he never made good on his threat to end things. Norma lamented that her good, kind husband needed something to do other than keep an eye on her. So she bought him a house on an old plantation property and sent Mac off to fix it up. They made friends with the couple who lived behind them, Elise and Bubba Rowling, and Norma often drank cocktails with her on their back porch. Elise didn't know Norma was Wallace or McCoy. At the Cedar Grove Plantation, they were known as the Pattersons. They got along well, often having Elise's nephew come down with her to do some work in the yard. I don't even know how to seamlessly write this in because it's so gross. Norma tries to seduce Elise's nephew, 14-year-old Wayne Bernard. I'm sure in 1953 this wouldn't have been a big deal to a lot of people, but it was churning to read about. Yeah. Is this the one? No. Wait. Wait, is this the one where they sneak off into the woods? Oh, yeah. His grandpa almost finds them. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So they, like, leave and go into the woods one night after they're in the kitchen and she forcibly grabs his hand and puts it on her chest 
and is like, now did that hurt you? Yeah. Are you okay with this? And yeah. then continues to find him in awkward positions yeah. when he's alone. Mm-hmm. And then they almost get caught by his like half blind, half deaf grandpa in the woods. Yeah. And that scared her off for a while. Yeah. Eventually, even though Bubba Rowling was a cop, they dropped the act and the act and Norma shared who they really were. Not long after, Bubba took their nephew, Wayne, to Conti Street for what Wiltz writes as, in quotes, seen to the ritual of manhood being conducted properly. But No. <laughs> oh, and then the, he had a quote. Um, he called Elise Nannies. What if Nannies comes in here? And Bubba said, you better follow me because I'm running a hole straight through oh this wall. Oh, God. Yeah. Uh, so gross. So savvy and shrewd from childhood, Norma loved the thrills of her career, and the ongoing battles with police were part of it. From spying on each other to chasing him off of, uh, off of other crime scenes, Big Mo never really got the best of Norma. Big Mo was promoted in the mid-50s, and a man named Presley Trosclair was named in his place. He always sent rookies in to help with raids on Norma's house because he took his time. Just like Norma, he was in it for the games. He preferred to try to outwit her than storming into the house and arresting everyone. One of Norma's best girls, a pretty dark-haired young woman named Terry, but nicknamed Yum Yum, which is never explained other than obviously it's a nickname she got from something she does in the bedroom. I think... um, Does it? I mean, well, Yum Yum makes me think that she didn't have to do any work. (laughs) Right, maybe. Maybe, but I don't know. (laughs) But they all talk about how good she was. And I'm like, well, that doesn't require a lot. (laughs) True. (laughs) But anyway. I don't know. I don't know either. She is chosen for a send out job one night. She goes to meet a guy at one of their other houses. Terry went and just as she undressed, the young cop pulled out his badge. The new captain, Trosclair, came in with a bunch of guys and tore the house apart while Terry looked at the cop that was holding her and said, what a pity you have to be a copper and pull a badge just when I think I was going to enjoy myself. Terry was smart and learned from the best. She and the cop continued seeing each other and she was eventually his downfall. He made comments about Terry not being a good mother and Norma sent in a tip that a local boy was known to frequent one of Norma's houses. Her trick of keeping records of bodily traits came in handy. When the cop came, or when the young cop denied the accusation, his superiors asked him to drop his pants, and he was asked to resign. For all this, Norma said, in quotes, I don't hate him. I just wanted to show him that's not how the game is played. That's literally her whole life. Yes. All she wants is the excitement of mm-hmm. a chase, mm-hmm. whether it's being sought after by the police, whether she's antagonizing the police, right. whether she's with a lover and then finds yes. another guy she wants to hook yes. up with. Her whole life is drama. Yeah. So Norma continued to play games with the cops well into her 50s. She and Trosclair followed each other around town like a pair of tomcats fighting over dinner. After the incident with Terry and her cop lover, Trosclair had eyes on Norma all the time, and she knew almost every neighborhood cop on sight. She would dress like an elderly woman and sit at the coffee shop they preferred around change and shift so she could get a look at all the new recruits. Like, what? She would literally so go funny. in, like, dressed up and, like, sit at the back and just, like, watch them come in. Yeah, she would put, like, a headscarf on and yeah. limp in like she was 75 <laughs> years old. Yeah. After one night out, Trisclair had two guys in front of the Conti Street house all night, thinking that surely some after-hours partying would be happening there. 
but all they got was a shock when the maid popped up in the dark, offering them chicken sandwiches. She told them Norma felt bad they had to sit there in the cold van all night because of her. <laughs> so, Which is like, yeah, she, she gave you a chicken them. sandwich, but the message was fuck you. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> His next move was to implant officers everywhere she went. One day, an unfamiliar woman at the hair salon took up all Norma's time with chatter. She saw the same woman a few days later directing traffic, but the officer didn't give up. In quotes, I'd rather be working for you than directing traffic every day of the winter and summer. But Norma was no fool. She knew exactly which officers worked with Trusclaire and replied, Honey, you couldn't be a maid in my house. You look like death took a holiday. (laughs) (laughs) She also commented that she had feet like porch steps. (laughs) Oh, my God, yeah. (laughs) She said they're a size 10 at least. (laughs) Oh, my God, yeah. Funny. So the last of Treclair's efforts for this episode are the most devious and the most fun for Norma. Her friend Poppy, who she describes as a pretty young homosexual, had an opulent party to which Norma wore a crimson boa so long she was tripping over it. The party was getting underway with post-dinner rounds of champagne when the neighbors screamed that they had called the police. So is this where we read our quote, the fun quote? Yes. From page If one you have two. your book handy, you I can read it. I got it ready. <laughs> where are we at? I even have it marked still. Okay, so the quote is, I jumped in my car, and you've never seen anything like it. Fairies with dresses on jumped in with me. Some were riding on the hood. Darlene, who weighed about 250 pounds, couldn't get in the car because it was so loaded. So she jumped up on the running board, and I took off. The car was tilting. Wigs, high heels, and purses were flying. (laughs) (laughs) I love the idea of, first of all, a car that has a running board. (laughs) (laughs) she just jumped onto it and was like take off bitch go (laughs) oh my gosh they all got away that night but the incident made trisclair think when he heard norma had been at the party he had recently arrested a young homosexual on a crime against nature all in quotes um yeah go fuck yourself 1950s (laughs) yeah (laughs) and was betting that it was the same friend of norma's that threw the party That friend eventually asked Norma if a couple of friends he had in town could come see one of her infamous shows, and she flatly refused. It was a good thing because he later admitted two cops would have shown up to her house that night. For one last incident with city cops, Norma first spotted John Datry. 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 She pronounces his name. She writes it in the book. Like when she's um, transcribing it or like saying it into her recorder, she says it date tree. Oh, yeah. So I like to think that she would, she like condescended to him all the time. Oh, date tree. (laughs) So for one last incident with city cops, Norma first spotted John Daytree, a New Orleans cop, when he was leading the front of the Mardi Mardi Gras parade on horseback. She decided right then and there she was going to chase him. Norma and Terry, a.k.a. Yum Yum, go to a bar where cops hang out, and she buys him a beer. He won't talk to her at first because he knows what she does for a living. But Norma lures him in with Terry as the prize rather than her. Casual bait and switch. He eventually got so (laughs) infatuated with her that he was driving her car around town and wearing a gold watch with their initials engraved on the backside. Daytree was so open about his relationship with Norma, Tusclair marked him for firing. He never got him for anything he did with Norma, but he was fired after he was caught in a bar fight one night. So, Bubba Rowlings is still in the picture. Norma was still friendly with him, and the two benefited from each other's connections. With her connections to gangsters and offhand introductions to criminals during her nights working at the house, Norma always had tips for Bubba. 
He got a great reputation for picking up wanted guys when no one else could find them, and Norma got a little insurance that she would have someone to call on when shit got bad. Just as her house served men on the run, men of higher stature also patronized her business. Bubba saw many judges and city officials walk in and out of Norma's doors, and he was who she called to help manage those VIP clients when they were out of line. Rather than calling the cops and getting the men disgraced and her own house shut down, everyone retained their discretion and dignity. So, this is the end of the episode for today, but here is a quote to end us on. Norma kept information on everybody who was anybody in her big black book. Their identification marks, their nicknames, things like uncle, sunshine, shoestring, pin, toothpick, licorice stick, cowboy, how much they owed, how much they paid, when they were there, the girls they liked. She had them all, should it ever come to that. In the late 50s, at the height of her power and influence, Someone asked Norma if there was anyone she didn't have in her pocket. It took her a moment, and then she said, the president. (laughs) So good. Yes. It's a good quote to finish this episode on. Yeah, so next week we'll be back with even more of Norma's wild shenanigans. (laughs) Yes, so much more. I mean, that's all we have for you guys this week, so hope you enjoyed. (laughs) I know. I think it's fun to keep dissecting this and recognize when the story is problematic and we can do better today, but also allow myself a little bit of fun when Norma is double-crossing people left, right, and center and just accumulating a large collection of diamonds. Yes. Oh, my God. Constant. Which I can't wait to talk about that. I know. I'm really excited for next week. I'm excited for next week. Because I read all of this book, like, up to the point that I'm at now. I read almost all of it before I wrote any of this episode. Oh, okay. So it's been a while since I've gone through it. Yeah, yeah. I'm excited. Yay. So, yeah. Till next time. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, at Death by Champagne Podcast. Instagram and Twitter at Dead from Champs, C-H-A-M-P-S. You can email us if you have any feedback or fun stories you would like us to share at deathbyshamps at gmail.com. And if you like the show, want to support us and get some extra bonus episodes that happen to be ad-free, all of our episodes are ad-free. If you listen through the Patreon link, you can sign up at patreon.com slash deathbyshampagne. Get, what, two years worth of bonus episodes? A lot. <laughs> That's awesome. Like we said earlier, this uh, this month's episode is going to be a recap of some rip from the headlines Law & Order SVU stories. So you can come on over there and wax poetic about Elliot Stabler with us and yes, all of his problems. Please. <laughs> but until next time. We're here to keep you up at night. Hail Satan. And pop some bottles. Oh. So good. <laughs> Where am I trash? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Bye, guys. Bye.